Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what the telly doesn't tell you. This time a hundred lines at least for MPs on the Education Select Committee. Did they really blame the underachievement of working class white boys on teachers who talk about white privilege? Well, yes they did. I think what's really problematic about pointing at white privilege as a cause of a lack of educational attainment or a lack of aspirations in white working class communities, white working class pupils, is that it ignores the very real causes of austerity, of poverty, of years of deprivation, of the dismantling of the welfare safety net that we've seen in the past 11 years. There is a huge amount of money and investment that has been withdrawn from some of these very deprived poor communities. Plus, a brilliant, funny interview with Byline Times writer Otto English, author of Fake History, Ten Great Lies and How They Shape the World. He's an ace talker and he's got all sorts of mischief-making myths in his sights, including our received wisdom about Winston Churchill and the Second World War. The fascinating thing about the narrative of World War II is that we stood up for liberty, that we stood up for Western values and culture and all these kinds of things. But at the very same time, we had a huge empire which basically oppressed about a third of the people on the planet Earth. All that to come. First, a reminder that unlike GB News, to pick an example totally at random, Byline Times doesn't have investment from hedge funds or foreign backers. We rely instead on people like you to keep us going by subscribing to our brilliant monthly newspaper, Byline Times. It's a snip at just £36 a year. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. We're woke and proud of it. Now, whether by accident or design, MPs on the Education Select Committee have opened a new front in Britain's culture wars by suggesting that talking about white privilege in schools might be contributing to the academic underperformance of working class white boys. It's not a passing comment either. White privilege, a phrase which they suggest might breach equality laws, is referenced no fewer than 50 times. Four Labour MPs on the Conservative-dominated committee voted against the report amid complaints that this question of language would become a distraction to the real issues at stake, how to improve the life chances of youngsters from disadvantaged families. And so it has proved. Byline Times reporter Sean Norris has been looking beyond the headlines and taking me through what the report found. First of all, it's important to say that there are some really good things in this report about educational attainment, the impact of lack of investment in early years education and early years support and various other aspects around kind of multi-generational disempowerment and things like that. So there's a lot of problems around how the report is being used to further these culture wars, but there are some valuable things in it. And they're also quite critical of the Department of Education for taking this sort of like, let's just keep doing the same thing and hope for different results approach, which they've been doing. But ultimately, the headlines have been about this issue around white privilege and the fact that very, very early on in the report, in fact, it's one of the first aspects of the report, you're getting this message that the term white privilege is harming educational attainment or harming the motivations, aspirations of white working class students. And although it is unspoken, there is a tiny bit on gender. Really, we're looking at in this report, white working class boys. A lot of the focus seems to be on 
the educational attainment of white working class boys. I think what's really problematic is the phrase white privilege, first of all, seems to be fairly misunderstood by some of the people consulted for the report. So if you look at um, Professor Matthew Goodwin's oral evidence that was given last year, he's talking about this notion that white people are expected to apologise for racism or for colonialism or for the disadvantage experienced by black, Asian and minority ethnic pupils or students or people in general. And this is a complete misunderstanding of what white privilege is. White privilege is simply recognising that if you are born white, then you will not experience the systemic and structural barriers caused by racism in the same way that if you are born male, you won't experience the systemic and structural barriers caused by sexism. This doesn't mean that white working class pupils, white working class boys in particular, are not facing their own struggles around poverty, around disempowerment, around these multi-generational issues of feeling that there's no hope or no future for you, that you're not engaged with a curriculum, that things are difficult. It just means that you're not experiencing the barrier of racism that your black Asian minority ethnic peers will be experiencing. Yeah, so you may well experience other disadvantage and that is not at issue in the question of white privilege, but you will never, by definition, suffer those disadvantages as a result of racism. It's quite specific in that sense. In the same way that all sorts of different layers of privilege work, it doesn't mean that things aren't difficult. I think the problem with the word privilege is it gives this idea of duck tails, that you're diving into this sort of cellar of gold coins and you know, bathing in, in milk and, and having a wonderful time. It just means that you're not experiencing racial disadvantage or sexist disadvantage, or you're not experiencing the barriers that a disabled person might experience. I think what's really problematic about pointing at white privilege as a cause of a lack of educational attainment or a lack of aspirations in white working class communities, white working class pupils, is that it ignores the very real causes of austerity, of poverty, of years of deprivation, of the dismantling of the welfare safety net that we've seen in the past 11 years, the real term cuts to school funding, the recent stealth cut to pupil premium funding. There is a huge amount of money and investment that has been withdrawn from some of these very deprived poor communities, where there is a kind of white working class majority. And that's really what we should be focusing on, not whether a couple of teachers may or may not be using the term white privilege in the classroom. Yes, and you talk about the evidence that's given by some of the people who've contributed to the Select Committee, people who were regarded as experts and came to give evidence. But the Select Committee itself recommends that schools should consider whether the promotion of politically controversial terminology, including white privilege, is consistent with their duties under the Equality Act 2010. So this is the MPs on the Select Committee very clearly saying that the idea of white privilege should not really be discussed in the classroom. My difficulty with that is that the problem of white working class educational underachievement predates by many decades the concept of white privilege, which has only been relatively recently introduced into these debates. I grew up on a council estate, predominantly with white people, and very few of my peers, I mean, vanishingly few of my peers, went to university. This is not a new phenomenon. So suggesting that failures of white working class educational attainment have arisen because we've now introduced this concept of 
of white privilege is frankly laughable. Yeah, I completely agree. First of all, I don't know what evidence we have that schools have become hotbeds of conversations about white privilege and that every teacher is going into the classroom telling young white working class boys that they have these layers of privilege. If anything, any conversations that are happening in schools around race and colonialism and empire should be celebrated and promoted because these are important aspects of British history that we should be better educated on and understanding more. But yeah, you're completely right. These are conversations that have really come into the spotlight over the last couple of years, particularly after last year with the Black Lives Matter protests. But the long tail of poverty, deprivation, a lack of aspiration, multi-generational culture of feeling hopeless or despair, you know, this is something that's been going on for much, much longer than recent conversations about race and empire. And I think this is why it's so important that we talk about the impact of austerity and we talk about the impact of lack of funding, lack of investment. One of the aspects of this report that is really, really good and positive is about early years. But there's no mention of the fact that there's up to a thousand Shore Start centres that have been closed down since 2010, which completely focused on early years and encouraging working class families or families living in deprivation to have aspirations to learn new skills, to learn life skills, to learn parenting skills. So they've sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater and now they're looking at someone else to blame. It's also much more nuanced than this, isn't it? Because when we talk about white working class and you've broken down some of the figures relating to children who are on free school meals, for example, if you are a member of the traveller community, you will fare worse than other groups of white working class people, for example, within different migrant communities. There are significant disparities of achievement as well. So pigeonholing it as black and white is not necessarily helpful, certainly doesn't tell us the whole story. Yeah, and the report is open about this. How do you define white working class? What does that term actually mean? There's a huge kind of discussion going on anyway about what is working class and, you know, awful days on Twitter when people are having rows about whether they're authentically working class or not. That's why they use the free school meals as a kind of marker of what is a measure of deprivation and what is a measure of growing up disadvantaged. But yeah, within the white community, you obviously have children where English is not their first language. You have Irish traveller Roma community. Within the black community, you've got African Caribbean who actually have quite similar educational outcomes as this white working class category and in other black Asian minority ethnic groups you have a much higher educational attainment but there's also other think ways of thinking about this so one of the things that is brought up in the report is that African Caribbean children are more likely to be excluded from school they're more likely to end up in custody they may be more likely to go to university but there are other disadvantages that they're going to be experiencing and of course as you know, I always make everything about gender, but I did find it quite surprising how little focus there was on girls in this report, particularly when we know that there is endemic sexual assault and abuse within schools at the moment and a very serious issue around mental health. And girls' poor mental health and self-harm is often linked to deprivation. It's a really fascinating report and, as you say, addresses all kinds of really important issues in the world of education to the point where this debate over white privilege almost feels like a distraction from some of these deep underlying issues. Do you think that's what's going on here? Have, have the MPs on the Select Committee chosen to open a new front in the culture wars rather 
than drilling down into some of the much deeper issues which their own research has uncovered. Yeah, I think that's probably correct. And I'm going to be incredibly partisan here. But I think a lot of the report focuses on the impact of a lack of investment, poverty, geographical inequality, all of these things which have been exacerbated by the years of austerity. So it's much easier to spark off a culture war and start blaming other oppressed groups, minority groups, for the issues being experienced by white working class school pupils then go, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that self-cut on pupil premium funding this year. Maybe maybe we shouldn't have had a real-term funding cut on school budgets in England and across the rest of the UK. Maybe we shouldn't have closed all those short start centres. <laughs> so I think the real conversations we need to be having are about cuts and austerity and the impact of, again, the increase in child poverty, the increase in the use of food banks, the deepening inequality that is happening regionally, because that would actually involve owning up to some issues and owning up to some decisions that have caused harm. It's much easier to go, oh, that teacher using the phrase white privilege has made this pupil feel that they should be apologising for racism and now they're not doing very well at school. Sean Norris, and you can read more from Sean at Byline Times, including a cracking story this week about how Cambridge University disbanded an academic group exploring Churchill and imperialism because of criticism in the tabloid press. This is the kind of cancel culture they don't complain about in The Sun and The Daily Mail. Talking of Churchill, few people have been more mythologised in our national story. He was named the greatest Briton of all time in a BBC poll a few years ago. But how much of what has been said and written about our wartime leader is actually true? Not a fat lot, according to Byline Times writer Otto English, who has identified numerous tales about him which are demonstrably false although that didn't stop Boris Johnson, including several of them, in his biography of Churchill in 2014. Otto's own book, Fake History, Ten Great Lies and How They Shaped the World, examines how these narratives and others like them are so enchanting and why they are so dangerous. When we chatted this week, he said the inspiration for the book came from his own family. The story begins, I suppose, the story of the book, both literally and metaphorically, begins in my grandparents' house because I was a child of the 70s and I was obsessed with two things in childhood. I was obsessed with Star Wars and real wars. And I think of the two, war wars won out over Star Wars. I had an armory of plastic toys in my bedroom cupboard. I had toy soldiers galore. I would line them up in huge battles and then sort of like God destroy entire battalions of men. And so I was obsessed with war. My grandfather had fought in the First World War. So in my mind, you know, this was something special and it was something that I would be able to connect with him over and and stories he would tell of the sort of excitement of running across no man's land and the bombs going off and all that kind of thing. And on our occasional journeys north, because my grandparents lived near Stoke-on-Trent, I would sort of try and get him to tell me these stories. But it was a complete disconnect with the sort of fantasy version of war. He was nearly 90 and like, well, I think he was over 90 in the early 80s. 
And he would sort of try and engage with me because I think I was one of only two grandchildren he had out of a, a dozens and dozens of grandchildren. But I had two male grandchildren. The other one wasn't particularly interested, <laughs> but I was. So I tried to get these stories out of him of war and, and excitement. But the stories he told were at very stark odds with the picture book Victor Comics war of my imagination you know he would quite often cry and start blubbing as he named his friends and I I realized subsequently that he was probably suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder that's the origin of the book because from that experience that disconnect between the popular imagination of war and how it had clearly affected my grandfather, who even then in his 90s, and how it had coloured his life and the life of his many children, my uncle and my aunts and my mother, how it had affected everybody. Those stories have been lost to a large extent because that entire generation has now died. And those stories have increasingly been appropriated by populist politicians who sort of would have us view them all as either heroes or victims, like at some homogenous mass of soldiers who fought for king and country. And that wasn't my experience of talking to my grandfather. That wasn't his experience of war. And that was not the general experience. And that's why fake history is fake history. Because in time, and weirdly, more so in recent memory, We reinvent the past, or politicians in particular, reinvent the past to fit a sort of national story, which they then weaponize for modern political ends. So you see it with World War I, and I think now we also see it a lot more with World War II, of which the last survivors of that war have now been turned into sort of secular saints, just by dint of being alive. (laughs) which is very peculiar, really. I mean, they they didn't choose to live in that time. They're not some magical generation. They were just alive at the time. And your own grandfather's World War I story, albeit that he attempted to articulate to you the grim reality at war, was, was at odds with the picture book version that you as a child were reading. His own story turned out within the family to have been romanticized he was actually part of a a pretty bloody part of world war one which as a child you were not privy to exactly yes this is another thing that happens with history families tell or boldlerize and edit the stories of their own families to fit a kind of broader narrative and my grandfather the way i was brought up believing it had been a member of the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, had run away in a sort of romantic, shinning down the drain pipe, sort of John Buchan story of gone off to fight in a war. And in time, I discovered, in fact, fairly recently, that this very romantic notion of war, in which my father was a soldier in the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders and a kilt and this Highland regiment, wasn't entirely true, because, as you say, actually, he'd been in the machine gun corps which was the sort of butchery end of the Western Front, those Vickers machine guns had an incredible range, something like three and a half kilometre, those guns, and they could fire hundreds of rounds a minute. So anybody walking out in front of that was cut to ribbons. And as a result, also, 
on both sides, machine gun teams were the go-to people for snipers and revenge. So if they ever captured one of those units, they just butchered them. And that was the same either side. So the fear, the trauma, plus what he must have seen, because we imagine soldiers sort of killing the enemy. What we don't realise, particularly irregulars, is that they often don't really want to do it. People are not designed to be killing machines. So I suspect all of that, the trauma, the guilt, all of it played a part. They, you know, they were just human beings like us. They were not a different generation. I suspect that many families elaborate or romanticise the deeds of the older members of the family or of their ancestors. Why does that matter on a national and even an international scale? Because, first of all, we like stories. And we like stories that make us feel good about ourselves. So in a family, if you've got a famous ancestor or somebody who did something noble, and because of the two wars, a lot of us have people in our family somewhere who were in uniform or something, it sort of shines well on us. It makes us feel that we are the descendants of somebody who did something remarkable and good. And by dint of that, we sort of feel good about ourselves and warm and sort of, yes, granddad was a Spitfire pilot or something. Quite often, granddad will not have been a Spitfire pilot. He will have been a mechanic. (laughs) But the story will have been changed. The same thing that happens in family history happens in national narratives. So because you've won World War II, or you think you've won World War II, you sort of feel good about it. But of course, we didn't win World War II because none of us, well, very few of us were there. None of us can remember it. But just like the family and the Todd Hunter thing, we appropriate that glory and use it to shine upon ourselves. A lot of Brexit and a lot of British generally exceptionalism is born out of those narratives and they're very often fake. My favourite, not the favourite is the wrong word, the fascinating thing about the narrative of World War II is that we stood up for liberty, that we stood up for Western values and culture and all these kinds of things. But at the very same time, we had a huge empire which basically oppressed about a third of the people on the planet Earth. And I I remember years ago going to Indonesia and discovering only then that in 1945, after the Japanese left, the British invaded Indonesia so so they could hold on to it for our Dutch allies to come back and take control. (laughs) Now, now if if we were the great liberators, why were we invading Indonesia in August 1945? You know, there were pitched battles in Surabaya and places, all forgotten in the national narrative. Yeah, there's a fascinating chapter about Winston Churchill. And as part of that, you make the point pretty bluntly, really, that Churchill happened to be fighting against fascism because his opponent was Adolf Hitler. But it was kind of an accident of history. What Winston Churchill was really doing was standing up for the British Empire and would have stood up for the British Empire, whoever had opposed it or challenged it or threatened its allies. Exactly. And who was his key ally for most of the war? Joseph Stalin, one of the most 
despicable dictators in modern history, responsible for murdering millions and millions of people himself. So that whole narrative of we were standing up against tyranny, yes, we were standing up against tyranny. And and I am very careful with that in the book, because there is a balance. The Nazi regime was a despicable, murderous regime led by a genuine lunatic bent on murder and destruction and genocide. But Winston Churchill's key interest was the maintenance of the British Empire. And he had stood by that position since, well, very early in his political career. You know, when the Indian independence movement started rising in the 20s and 30s, Churchill was very much out of kilter with his contemporaries, even in the, obviously the Liberal, but later in the Conservative Party, because many of them thought Indian independence was inevitable. But Churchill was dead against it and did everything in his power to stop it. Yeah, that's a very important distinction, isn't it? He wasn't generically for freedom and equality and liberal values, the kind of values that we might regard as being in opposition to fascism. He was opposed to Hitler, but only because Hitler was a threat to the British Empire. Uh, You know, Churchill is a hugely complex character. There are obviously whole books on sort of debunking the Churchill myth, but not enough, in my opinion. (laughs) Not enough, because actually we do Churchill a disservice by turning him into this kind of iconic secular state on a statue. The man was complex with multifaceted, often contradictory views over his very, very long political life. And just to reduce him to this almost comical, cartoonish figure of a man in a bow tie with a cigar, single-handedly, noel-cowardly, wittily getting his way through the war, I think probably does him a disservice. Yeah, one of the classic gags about Churchill is that he supposedly saw the Labour MP, I think it was Bessie Braddock in the House of Commons, and she said to him, Mr Churchill, you are drunk, to which he responded, yes, madam, and you are ugly, but in the morning I shall be sober. It's a great line. Great line. It's also bullshit. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, It's a great line. And the reason that joke has continued is because like all old jokes, it's a good one. And the joke is older even than Winston Churchill. It goes back to the days of music hall. So that joke had been doing the rounds for years and years and years and years. I I was actually interviewed by someone in the week who said, but at least um, Winston came out with those amazing one-liners. And as I told him one by one, Winston had not come out with any of those one-liners. You could be, hear dead radio on the other side. I felt a bit sorry because I kind of dispelled the whole myth. But he was not some wise cracking vaudeville act. He was a politician. One of those quotes, which is attributed to Churchill, goes along the lines of something like, if you're not a liberal by 25, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by 40, you have no brain or something like that which is a lovely line. Lots of people quote it. I've seen it on the internet. The only problem with it is that Winston Churchill was a conservative at 25 and a liberal at 40. (laughs) 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 One thing which nobody ever seems to have noticed. But anyway, there you go, yeah. 
But this is important in terms of our national story today, because as you say, Churchill is lionised. He is part of a narrative around World War II. I think it's great credit to your book that you don't attempt to demolish the good that Churchill did. You acknowledge that, but you attempt to show him in the round. And when you talk about World War II, you question this notion, which I think is very prevalent in Britain today, that of British exceptionalism, of plucky little Britain, seeing off the might of the Nazis, the Battle of Britain and all that, repeated in modern movies like Dunkirk and Their Finest Hour, the Gary Oldman movie. That wasn't the reality, even though as a culture, we buy into that. Yes. If you take the narrative of 1940 in particular, which is the one we all know, Britain stood alone, their finest hour, the little ships rescuing people from Dunkirk and all that kind of stuff. We all know those stories. My publisher, who is even younger than I am, who's much younger than I am, the thing that blew his mind off was the Dunkirk story. He actually sent me an email going, are you sure this is right? (laughs) Uh, The bit that he was worried about was the little ships bit because so many people believe that um, as France fell, a a little flotilla of boats set out, sort of manned by Derek in, you know, Dover or something like that, and that they went out and picked up people off the beach and brought them back. And it's a rousing sort of narrative of deliverance isn't it which everybody loves but of course that didn't happen the little ships did go out they were requisitioned by the royal navy they were taken by royal navy and merchant seamen and quite often against their owners <laughs> protestations of i don't want you to take my boat you know? <laughs> as you wouldn't you've got a little pleasure steamer or whatever down by the coast yeah and so don't take my boat that was one of the bits of that chapter that really took my breath away because I didn't particularly like the Gary Oldman film that I recalled there, Their Finest Hour, but Dunkirk I thought was a fabulous film and I bought into, quite innocently, that notion of ordinary people manning the small boats to help out with the official rescue mission from the beaches of Dunkirk. But the character on which the movie Dunkirk is based was also used for a previous film about the small ships. He was a real character, but in the movies, he's portrayed as an ordinary Joe, literally as an ordinary Joe. In fact, he was a, I think he was a former admiral, wasn't he? He called Light Honor. He was a, he'd actually been the deputy, well, I'm not a seaman, so I can't remember the exact term, but he he was basically number two on the Titanic. Yeah. So this was a seasoned sailor. And he'd been a professional sailor of 30, 40 years standing and was retired. And so he did go out and he did rescue people. But you're right, that story, people have now decided that was everybody. But really, it was kind of one or two people. Again, it's not to take away from the bravery of the people who went than the merchant seamen and the fishermen who went, because fishermen and seamen did go, but it was not ordinary people from the south coast of Britain, and it was mostly Royal Naval personnel who went. And likewise, the subsequent story of the Battle of Britain, where in the popular imagination, a sort of group of public schoolboys put down their pipes, take off their slippers, and climb wearily into the sort of three available spitfires and go off and defeat the vast 
masses of Luftwaffe planes coming towards us, certain defeat. That's all a load of nonsense <laughs> because because the two sides were roughly, roughly equal. And, of course, every match for the Luftwaffe was an away match. So if they got shot down, they lost their pilot, whether they died or were captured. Whereas with British pilots, if they were shot down, if they survived, which many of them did, they got in a jeep and went back to base. So we were outproducing the Germans, I think, two to one by late 1940 in aircraft. The Royal Navy was still the largest navy by far in the world, which is incredible now to consider. I'm sure the new Royal Yacht Britannia will will add to the fleet and take us back to the glory days. But, <laughs> but it was a huge notion that Britain was actually going to be invaded in 1940, played well for the government because they wanted the United States to come into the war. And also they wanted the people to unify against the common enemy, which these are all noble things, actually. And of course, there was a threat because here I am in London and there you are in Birmingham. And as we know, our cities were bombed heavily during the war and forty to 50,000 people died during those various attacks. So yes, there was a real threat, but the threat of invasion was not really there because even the Germans calculated that it would be suicidal. And again, this is so important in terms of the stories we tell ourselves today, because this notion of plucky little Britain, of British exceptionalism, you can see clearly playing out, for example, in Brexit and even post-Brexit in how the government postures on the global stage. No one has been more avid about promoting the cult of Churchill than Boris Johnson, yeah. that Prime Minister, who wrote a biography. Some people might call it a hagiography of Churchill. There was one astonishing story that you tell, a brilliant story. Um, I hope you don't mind me sharing it with listeners. Yeah. It's a story of a cleaner, an East End cleaner who works in the government offices and coming away from work one night in Whitehall, she sees this sealed paper on the floor in a puddle and she thinks that's a bit strange and she picks it up and she opens it and has a look and realises that this is actually secret information, potentially dangerous information if it falls into the hands of an enemy. She takes it back to her house, a little terraced house in the East End. Her son looks at it and they decide, yeah, we've got to get this back. And, and so the cleaner takes it back. And Winston Churchill is so grateful to this cleaner that despite her lowly status, he makes her a dame. Yeah. It's an absolutely beautiful story showing the bond between high politicians and ordinary people, the patriotism of ordinary people at this time, but also Winston Churchill's common touch yeah. in awarding her a damehood. Yeah. Sadly, even though Boris Johnson tells this story in his Churchill biography, it's not true. Yeah, it's complete nonsense, yeah. And, I mean, I... <laughs> complete nonsense. And the thing with that story is, Johnson makes a big fuss in the book. And when he was plugging his book in New York and elsewhere, he made a big thing about how he tried to verify the story, to which you can only say, well, you can't have tried at all, yeah, because... A very quick Google search brings up the National Archives and you can look at 
the awards dished out in the war. And you can look at the awards dished out in 1940. I think it was his resignation honours he, he claimed he made her a DBE. That's what Johnson claims. He claims that in Churchill's resignation honours, he made her a DBE. Well, in the whole course of the war, I think Churchill awarded three DBEs, that's Dame of the British Empire, and they were all to highly aristocratic women. <laughs> there was no cleaning lady given an award. I went through all of the medals. The whole thing took me about an hour to check that story and properly, properly verify it, that, that he hadn't given an award to a cleaning lady, not even an MBE, you know, no disrespect to the MBE, but not even the, the slightly lower down the, the scale things. But Johnson had clearly been told this story by a relative of Winston Churchill and had just taken it on face value and put it in his book. And to be honest, I don't think he cared if it was true, as with so much else in Boris Johnson's life. I don't think he cares whether it's true. If it makes the person look good, he's happy to tell the story. He's happy for people to read it and he's happy for people to believe it. And that's the other problem, both with our current prime minister and with the Winston Churchill narrative. If you can't tell basic truths to people (laughs) and trust them with them, then where are we at? And what is it about Johnson and Churchill? Why does the Prime Minister want to venerate him so rather than seeing him as a human being, good in parts, flawed in parts, as we all are. Yes. Weirdly, when I started writing the book, I thought, you know, Johnson appropriating Churchill, how dare he, how disgusting. But then actually, when when you research the life of Winston Churchill, there's a lot of similarities between the two men. Uh, uh, you know, people say, oh, he's no Winston Churchill. Actually, he is a lot like Winston <laughs> Churchill. You know, Winston Churchill was very often keen on the prize or getting the title, but very bad on delivering. There's that famous story of him in the First World War when he was first Lord of the Admiralty and after the disaster at Gallipoli, Churchill joins up and goes into the trenches. A lot of people know that story. And a lot of people say, doesn't that shine well on Winston Churchill? You know, what an amazing man. He resigns his ministerial position and he goes into the trenches. What what an absolute hero. Unfortunately... Everybody has neglected to notice that about a third of parliamentarians in the First World War were in uniform, and a great many were at the front. And indeed, 35 MPs and former MPs lost their lives in the First World War. And the thing with Churchill was, once he got there, he was mostly interested in what rank he was going to be. (laughs) He wanted to be a brigadier. And somebody said, but you haven't been in, in the army for, for nearly 30, 25 years or something. He said, I don't care. I want to be. And so he lobbied hard to become a brigadier. And, and when he was ended up being a mere colonel, was a bit disappointed and upset and wanted to come back to London. That's very Boris Johnson, isn't it? Yeah, Boris Johnson always liked the gig, the job, the title. But when he's got it, he doesn't really know what to do with it. And Winston Churchill spent most of his time at the front painting pictures and organising games for his men because there was no action where he was. But But the story looks good. It sounds good. It shines a light on him. 
Yeah, well, it, it's good. It's uh, quite enlightening about both Churchill and Boris Johnson for that reason. I'm going to ask you about your favourite bit of fake history, but the other favourite bit of mine that you revealed that genuinely was new to me was the stuff about Christopher Columbus. And obviously, he didn't discover America in the sense that I know that there were indigenous people living there. But you point out that he didn't actually get to America, did he? No, nor did he realise he was there. And that's the best bit of it. (laughs) (laughs) Christopher Columbus was as terrible a navigator as Carry On Columbus was a terrible film. I mean, that's that's the way to think of it. The guy sets out thinking he's going to go round the world to India and find a new route or something. And so when he gets, but he miscalculated the size of the world by a third. <laughs> Easily done. When he gets to the West Indies, he initially thought he was in China, and then he sailed north of it and decided he was in Japan. And you don't need an atlas to, to look that mistake up. And he was a god-awful navigator and a god-awful human being. Yeah. So, I mean, like a really, even by the standard of his time, a truly appalling human being who enslaved the people of the islands in the West Indies that he conquered, normalised torture and sexual abuse, and eventually was sent back in chains to Spain in disgrace. But later on, America needed an origin story, and Christopher Columbus fitted the mould. He was Italian, he'd been sent by the Spanish, he was a sort of multicultural figure almost. And he wasn't political, he wasn't English, he wasn't, I mean, actually, John Cabot was not English. (laughs) But, But in the early narrative of the United States, he was the right guy to be the discoverer of America, even though he hadn't discovered America. <laughs> and Cabot, who you mentioned, wasn't English, but was sent by the English. And of his generation of adventurers or explorers, yeah. however you want to describe them, he was the man who actually, in inverted commas, discovered America. He actually reached America, which Columbus didn't yeah. do. But as you say, the, the narrative it didn't fit the narrative because he'd been sent by the hated English, who were the the colonial force in the United States, as it became. As Abba always say, the history book on the shelf is always repeating itself, and you say the same thing happen over and again. People create a narrative about their origins and things, and everyone buys into it. It's often because human beings lack imagination. <laughs> it's often the same narrative story repeated with different characters. Yes. So Columbus was a regard to him, but because of this, another hagiography of him, we were brought up on the story that he had believed or his sailors had believed the world was flat and that he was trying to prove it was round and that they're all clinging to the, the rigging, you know, as they think they're going to go over the edge. But actually, people had known for thousands of years that the Earth was round or a sphere because there's a very big clue in the sky called the moon <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and the sun. Why would the Earth alone among celestial objects be flat? And way back in Hellenistic Greece, people had been calculating the circumference of the Earth Venerable Bede wrote about the Earth being round. So everybody knew the Earth was round in 1492. 
So some of the myths, the shibboleths that you challenge are that the royal family is German, that curry comes from India, that the Aztecs were slaughtered by the conquistadors, that Abraham Lincoln believed all men were created equal, that Hitler was a failed artist, that if Napoleon had won, we'd all be speaking French, that Genghis Khan was a pitiless barbarian and that the good old days were good. So there's loads of stuff there that I'm sure people will be listening to this thinking, huh? What? Those things are not true. Ladies and gentlemen, they are not true, uh, as Otto English will prove to you. Which of those, though, is your favourite myth to bust? So some of those, and I hope people, when they read it, will see, I've riffed off them a bit. I've kind of taken a tune and created jazz history around the... And weirdly, the Adolf Hitler was an artist one is my favourite, but I won't talk about it because I've talked a lot about war. So curry comes from India. There you are. Again, you're in Birmingham speaking to me from the home of curry. And, and I lived in Birmingham for a bit. And there are all these myths of um, curry and how it was created and chicken tikka masala and balti, of course, and all of this kind of stuff. So I go into... South Asian immigration into the UK over the hundreds of years prior to the 1940s and 50s. But what is curry? Curry is a leaf. And the migrants to this country started calling it curry because the British called it curry. But the British called any hot food they encountered on their travels curry. That's why we call Thai curry, Thai curry, Malay curry, Malay curry. Even in Indonesia, again, where I've lived, no one in Indonesia ever described anything in Indonesia as a curry. But if you go into a sort of Indonesian restaurant in the UK, people go, oh, it's Indonesian curry, that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a kind of Indonesian curry. Indonesians don't even know what a curry is. So curry is one of those terms that was taken from a leaf which the British kind of adopted and made up and which migrant communities trying to start businesses adopted themselves and said yes it's a curry isn't it but calling all South Asian or Southeast Asian or even a lot of East Asian food curry is like calling all of the food from Europe potato and then you go to a potato restaurant where you eat spaghetti bolognese white bread and lasagna and paella. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a mishmash. It's also a glorious thing because food is the great unifier and it is the thing that we all come together and do. And I think it's great the way that food can transpose borders and change. And famously, things like fish and chips have got curious, interesting origins. So I loved that chapter. And I was really surprised by how much I loved writing. I wanted to put a chapter about food in there because I thought we needed variety, another dish, if you like. But I loved writing that chapter a lot. The book is really easy to read and it's a great read, a rollicking read, I would say. You can put me on the dust jacket saying that if you like. Uh, You clearly had great fun writing it. But as I said, right at the start, there is a serious point here, isn't there, that some of these things are trivial but fun to discover Other parts of this history feed into how we think about ourselves, how we behave politically. And in the wrong hands, these stories can be dangerous. Yes, and colour how we view the rest of the world. My Genghis Khan chapter is really about how people in Europe view people in East Asia. You know, the whole 
revolting yellow peril narratives of the 19th century, a narrative which Western Europeans and Americans have never quite shaken off, viewing everybody in the east of Asia as some sort of dangerous maniac, hell-bent on taking over the world or something. So yes, it's not just how we view our own history, it's how we view other history. And also, many British people and many Americans believe their, or and French people for that matter, believe their history is more important than everybody else's. And this sort of isolationist history tendency of just looking inward, navel-gazing, when we, we all share a history in a sense, don't we? The globe shares a history. We've all emerged out of the same peoples and individuals. And um, again, like food, it should be a unifying thing, but it's used to divide us. The book is in a sense a, a testament to the power of stories, sometimes the misuse of stories. But politicians do recognise the the effect that a good story can have. There's a an absolutely fascinating chapter which talks about how the Nazis, in order to prove the superiority of the Aryan race, even invented a myth or sought to invent a myth in order to prove their superiority. I mean, of course, a superiority that you have to invent a story about suggests that there isn't much innate superiority there at all. But they set about faking history in order to tell a story about themselves to justify the view that they were superior to other races. Yeah. If what had later happened in Nazi Germany had not been so horrifying, it would be comical. They fictionalised archaeological artefacts. They invented this bizarre narrative about Atlantis, which came out of poetry and things. You know, weirdly... Much the same has gone on in North Korea in recent years. They have this Mount Pictou thing, which I tackle later in the book, where they've made up all these myths about the Kim regime and how they were born on Mount Pictou and how they've got special blood and embodied with this great spirit. And as I point out later, even as we sort of are wary of the Nazis doing that and kind of mock the Koreans, we have to be very careful because... The same thing happens in in this country. (laughs) Blitz spirit. I I would not equate that to the Nazi sort of Aryan spirit, but the notion that a people are special or like a special chosen British people or chosen Korean people or chosen German people is very, very pernicious and very dangerous and is normally built on fake history. Otto English, whose book Fake History, Ten Great Lies and How They Shape the World is out now via Welbeck Books and it is a great read, honestly. You can also read Otto's words in the Byline Times, so please don't forget to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.